Hello, everybody. Welcome to the 13th episode of the Manor Podcast. I'm your co-host, Roger Bodie, joined as always with my best friend and other co-host, Michael Hamilton. Michael Hamilton, what's the sitch? What's the sitch? Oh, we're leaving for Lille in less than a week, so I guess we're getting ready for Lille. What does that mean? <laughs> like, what's the situation? Yeah, we're uh, recording the start of our podcast. Going to be recording the middle and the ending of it also. And then, uh, yeah. Well, you can never be recording the middle or the ending of anything. You can only be recording the part that you're Wait, recording. What? Yeah, which some, sometimes that's the middle, sometimes that's the end. You never watched Kim Possible? No, no. It's, if I did, it's been a really long okay. time. There you go. Okay. I went I went old school on that one. Uh, I'm okay. Get ready for France as well. I think I've solved the draft format, so that's good. I don't think I could ever lose another game of Limited again. That's that good. Yeah, it's easy. You just force Icelander every time and nobody sees it coming. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So what are we talking about today? Good way to pivot the conversation because today we're going to be talking about the notorious concept of pivot turns. So essentially, there's a very common idea of flesh and blood where at some point you'll need to take a pivot away from what your strategy that you've been doing to a certain point or what your game plan has been up to the point whether that be primarily blocking or primarily attacking in order to try to swing the momentum back in your favor or keep the momentum in your favor going and michael does not believe in them he thinks they're so, much like bigfoot i i would like to i guess ask what exactly is involved in a pivot turn why would you want to shift your strategy from a game shouldn't you just be doing what's the best thing to be doing the entire game so there are going to be moments and opportunities in a game where you're going to give up short-term value or tempo i guess for we can come back to that term of dividing tempo at some point as well in order to get better long-term initiative or value and it's not always clear whether or not what your action or game plan will pay off in the long run. So in my mind, the core example of a pivot turn is anytime Prism is face tanking like 20 damage in order to set up auras, she's attempting to try to pivot the game into a situation where she's giving up a lot of life in this early state, usually early to mid game board state in order to get future payoff value from any resources gained or life saved from these auras that are going to eventually just stick around and potentially try to take over the game. So I think that in my mind is the clearest distillation of what the fundamental pivot turn is in Flesh and Blood. So I guess the example is you're playing Prism, you're taking a lot of damage to develop your auras. At some point, you can't keep taking this damage. So you start blocking more and only retaining like one card to continue swinging the auras. And that's what you would classify as a pivot turn when you stop just taking all the damage to develop the auras. That's an example of a pivot turn, yes. Okay, that makes sense because you are changing your game plan, but it's all just part of one game plan going into the game, right? You're sacrificing health to set up these auras, and then when it is no longer feasible to do so, you stop sacrificing health to set up more auras. But like throughout the course of the game, are you not blocking on hands that don't do a good job at developing auras? Well, that depends. You can also be attempting to swing with the giant heralds in order to develop a game plan that way. So there's kind of this fluid dynamic in Prism. And I guess stepping away from Prism in general, if we just look at it more of a macro level, there's going to be, I guess, let's circle back to the term tempo. Do you, do you think that there's any tempo in Flesh and Blood? 
I really don't like the word tempo because in my opinion, there isn't really like sometimes you're advantaged, sometimes you're disadvantaged, but like tempos, whoever's losing more health on a certain turn doesn't necessarily have less tempo or whoever's dealing more damage on a turn doesn't necessarily have tempo. What would you define tempo as? I guess, yeah. So you're on the back foot where you are behind in life or resources. And let's say, for example, you're I'm at... 10 life and you're at 10 life but you get to swing four or three powered attacks every turn at me so i'm obligated to start blocking first so i am immediately on the back foot because i don't have the opportunity to take the damage in order to present damage back to you so from there it's up to me to try to find a creative way or hope that you stumble in order to steal the initiative back so that you have to start being the one to block you with your cards in your hand okay so if we're playing a five mirror and limited and you go first, you attack me with some things. I block with most of my cards. Then I attack with most of my things. Maybe you block with one. Maybe you don't block at all. You go to like eight to 10 life. Yeah, you have tempo at that point. And I'm still at 18 or something. Then I, I have tempo because I'm just winning the game. Whoever's ahead in the game is who has tempo. Usually, yeah, that's that's like, well, yeah, because if all things continue equally, if nothing else changes about the game state, the favored person is going to continue their advancing position in order to win the game from there. Yeah. So it's up to you to try to deviate from what your normal turn cycle would look like or what you're obligated to do in order to find a way to get them to start blocking in order to alleviate the amount of damage that's being presented to you every turn. So I guess it's not, I, I hear your example that tempo is like happening when you are threatening lethal on your opponent. Because they are forced to block, because if they don't, they will die. What are other ways tempo is generated or exists in the game? So you've never had a game state where, so even where your opponent is ahead on life and... I guess um, for clarity, I'm not trying to say that these things don't exist. I just don't think there is a solid universal definition of them. So I want to understand where you are coming from and make sure that that's like clearly communicated so i guess everybody knows that that heroes have typical damage output turns where you know that on average a rune blade is going to be capable of presenting at least 15 damage a turn all the way up to like 30 to 35 damage so there's that range of damage that is i would say the average rune blade amount of damage and that deviates from hero to hero and circumstance to circumstance, depending on what part of the game you're in, whether or not you're on second cycle and they're all in blues, but there's like an expected amount of damage you can expect to be taken, taking regardless of whether or not you block or don't block. And once that becomes untenable for you to either mitigate that damage or commit all of your resources to never do anything threatening to your opponent again that's obviously a losing game state and that's what you're either trying to set up on your own end or avoid from your opponent's end and there's different ways in which heroes go about obtaining that game state right because ultimately the fun like a fundamental mechanic to the game is pretty central to tempo where your cards are both offensive and defensive resources unless you're playing a bunch of ball lightning but <laughs> normally they're supposed to be offensive and defensive yeah. resources so that just 
inherently leads to the tension between whether or not you're using your cards to attack or defend. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're trying to put the game state into a spot where your opponent is required to block with their cards because you will be presenting lethal, and that is having tempo. When you're presenting lethal and forcing them to block with their cards rather than attack you back with their cards or i guess regardless of what is the most efficient use of their their cards you're forcing them to block with them yeah and a pivot would be going from a situation where you have been on the back foot trying to block out or stay away from that lethal range where you no longer have any options with your cards to even decide to whether even to think about attacking the other hero again because once you get to a certain life total like the one to two life total range it's incredibly hard to have that pivot turn because you just don't have any options in order to swing the tempo back so that's why it's usually incumbent on the player on the back foot to create the situations where they're going to either do something disruptive or overwhelm the amount of damage that they might take in the short term in order to seal back that initiative so that's like what a pivot would be they're pivoting from being on the back foot to the front foot what what is being on the back foot in the first place just being at a lower life total generally yeah but not necessarily at the same time either because you could be at 20 versus a room blade that's at 15 and that's still or 10 even that's still maybe even parity at that point because if your deck is only capable of presenting like 10 damage a turn at most and as we said before, Rune Blades can produce up to like 35 damage on their crazy turns. It's not 100% clear who's on the front foot or back foot at that point. Yeah, I guess um, what I'm not really sure I agree with or understand is what you really mean by being on the front foot or back foot. If you are, if you are in a range where you are being threatened with lethal, it sounds like you don't have tempo because they can threaten you with lethal so you can't preserve your hand but before that let's say at the start of the game who is what what causes someone to be on the front foot if they're just like not blocking and attacking are they on the front foot even if they're just like taking your hits back to in order to keep attacking because if you look back at a lot of aggro mirrors a lot of the time both players don't block very often because their cards are much more efficient attacking than blocking so they prefer to just attack with all their cards most of the time yeah, absolutely. But that's why also they prefer to go second in the aggro mirrors because you get to use the initiative to prevent the damage with your cards for free, quote unquote, that turn where your opponent won't have that luxury for the rest of the game. So you're implicitly saying, I am going to allow you the first mover advantage of the game because I want to be able to have the front foot tempo initiative, whatever colorful word you want to use for this, where I am going to be able to present more damage than our hands are going to be able to block for, and you are not going to have a good opportunity in order to mitigate my damage for the rest of the game. Okay, so if, I guess, do pivot turns exist in aggro mirrors? So if I'm going first and we're playing a five mirror and I attack you, and let's say you drew a Phoenix Flame or something and you leak five damage and I arsenal, and then you attack me back and you do 15 damage to me, and then I attack you back, and I threaten 14 damage. Is is there, like, what, what is, I guess, I'm, I'm not really sure what's what's the pivot turn, or what's what would be happening that would be a tempo or pivot turn. And then, like, when you get to low life totals, you're forced to block, but you're never forced to block before that, basically, unless they have on hits. Right, as long as you aren't taking lethal damage, you are not obligated to block, and technically you're not even obligated to block once you're being threatened with lethal damage. You could just take it and lose the game. <laughs> 
Sure, sure, sure. A pivot turn would then be, so, threatening an arsenal card, where if their cards scale exponentially off the fifth card and you are playing a Command and Conquer, you are then trying to steal back initiative, where maybe you are blocking less on a turn, you're taking more damage up front in order to make it so that they are dealing less damage on their next turn cycle so that you can start presenting the higher damage threshold for the rest of the game. Additionally, trying to bait out or force your opponents to use pieces of equipment that block early is a huge tempo swing because that's options that they're not going to have available to them at the end of the game once they're on low life totals and they're then required to use their limited cards in their hand every turn in order to to be defensive. And that's why one of the biggest mistakes people make in Flesh and Blood often, especially early on, is saying, well, I can block with my armor early because I'm going to have this really sweet middle game turn. And well, you might have good value in the earlier mid game from your equipment. You know, you're not that exercising that option earlier on is not worth as much as having that option later on once your options become more constrained by your life total being lower. Do you agree or disagree with that? So it is definitely expensive to block with the armor. I don't see how it's a tempo hit because you spend your armor, but you're saving those six points of life or whatever that you saved by blocking with your armor. Is every point of life created equally? Yes. No. No. <laughs> no. Why why not? Because your last three life total points are worth exponentially more than your first three more. Or first three life total points. Because once you have zero life total points, you lose the game. Did you know that? I know you don't lose very often, Michael, but you generally, when you run out of life total points, uh, us mortals, we, we lose the game at that point. I've lost many games of flesh and blood. So I don't believe it. I'll believe it when I see it. So in Flesh and Blood, in many matchups, I think all life points are essentially equal. If you aren't... How egalitarian of you. If, if you're not doing anything to build an advantage over time or have any effects that like scale over the course of the game, it doesn't really matter whether it's your first life point or your last life point. It's all essentially the same value of a card. Or maybe I should say a second to last life point. Your last life point <laughs> is kind of special because when you lose that, you lose. But it's like... So you have to defend it more aggressively than you would any other life point. Like Kadachi for one becomes a must block. Phoenix Flame for one becomes a must block. But a lot of the time you end up in that situation because potentially you didn't value your other life points as highly as you should. Or the game was just like disadvantaged from the start. But in situations where your opponent can keep threatening one damage when you're at one life, a lot of times that game is just lost anyway. So at that point, the difference between your first three life points and then your range of life points between one and five or or one and two or one and three are a lot different. Because if you're saying there's a huge difference between the last, the first, the the one one and zero obviously there's that's the point of the game where you've lost but then in your own statement there you just said you sometimes you're at one life total point and they're going to keep threatening one so then you've lost the game earlier anyways so that means you lost the game at the point that you hit the range where you can no longer keep out of their damage output range does that make sense or am i misunderstanding something that means you could effectively lose the game at 10 life because you no longer have any opportunities to not block with your old hand because they threaten 10 damage every single turn. So at that point, them threatening one damage and then threatening 10 damage is the exact same number. No, because one damage is easier to block than 10 damage. So (laughs) sure, but you still only have a certain amount of damage mitigation per hand. So like 
that last life point is the most important, I guess, because when you lose it, you lose. But if you're losing when you reach that one life point, that one life point is kind of useless, right? You just lost anyway. Right. And it's the same as if you if you are in that 10 life point range, it's useless. Those 10 life total points are useless because you've lost anyways. There's nothing you can do for the rest of the game to ever hope to threaten to deal damage back to your opponent to win. If I'm at one and you're at 10 and I'm threatening 20 damage a turn or 13 damage a turn and your deck is nothing but block threes, I've won the game. Why is that the case? I guess cards in deck, but... No, if, you, if I'm at 10 life and I have... All block threes, and you always present 13 damage. Can I just block with two cards, take seven, and then attack with two cards? Yeah, I did the math wrong in my example. <laughs> if I'm at 10 and all my deck is block threes, and you present 22 damage every turn, then I lose the game. Yeah, or four, and everything is four damage, and you have block threes. It's just weird to me that you never thought about the game this way. Like, this is something I think about a lot, like in the early to mid game. And it's something that I would figure have to be very important to a player like you in, in Guardian because you are looking to usually take back take larger chunks of damage at times or maybe this is why i suck a guardian because i would try to do the guardian trap of take the damage to put the disruption back in order to steal the longer term initiative with playing the channel like frigid or spinal crushing or crippling crushing or oaken holding where <laughs> most of the time it was the correct answer was actually just block <laughs> yeah so a lot of the time if you do this you try to take damage to have a quote-unquote pivot turn where you attack for a big disruptive effect sure then you have a big disruptive effect and then you stop them from doing what they want and then a lot of the time when you're playing your guardian decks you do that and then you draw a hand of four blues or <laughs> three blues and a red attack that costs three or five and you can't efficiently use the rest of your hand to present more damage or present more effects and it maybe this is why i'm kind of opposed to the idea of pivot turns is if you take a bunch of damage to do something powerful even if that completely stops them from doing anything on their next turn they take some damage back and they don't present any damage to you the following turn well now you have a four card hand sometimes a five card hand and you need to convert that hand into attacking again and if you can't effectively do that you quote unquote pivoted but then you just give up whatever advantages you may have gained from that pivot where they just attack you again after that so what's the difference between i guess the old heim limp pivots to the rock hard prism pivots where her auras and her short-term loss of value is able to make up for that in the long run is it just that the auras are just that insanely better rate in the longer term value than attacking for nine and not allowing your opponent to play the game for a turn as prism a lot of the time you're taking damage to set up your auras in the early game, and then you're expecting these auras to generate value over the course of the game as long as they survive. And ideally, you're putting out two auras in the same turn a couple times, and that is basically guaranteeing that some of them survive. And then you try to rely on those auras to push through damage in the end of the game. And the main reason you would stop playing auras as the game gets later is because the amount of time left in the game isn't enough to get enough value out of the aura for playing it, right? Or you just die because your auras don't block. Yeah, but you, you stop. You're like, either I'm going to die before this aura matters or they're going to die before this aura is efficient enough to be worth having played it over, let's say, a herald or using the pitching it for resources. Or sometimes your life total makes the decision for you where you, set, you 
since the auras mostly cost four, you can say, well, if I use two yellows out of my hand in order to play this aura, that means I have one card left to block with. And if I'm at four life total points and they're attacking me for four twice, I, I just can't make that play or I, I lose on the spot. So I'm obligated at that point to find a different use for that aura. It's not a question of not getting enough value out of it. It's the fact that I, I can't even make the decision to even attempt to try to get value out of it in the first place. Maybe thinking about it from like, a different analogy might help this click for you a little bit better. So like if we think about it like in a more traditional game like chess or go, like computers that are able to do the perfect information projection out of 10,000 moves or whatever are able to evaluate whose position is better in a given situation, right? They, they, they're usually saying, well, black is better on this chessboard because they have a more active bishop and they're taking up more space in the center. Or in Go, white is better because they have more flexible territories and have created more secured groups than black has in this game. So let's say there was a computer that was able to perfectly calculate every possible permutation of cards uh, between two players and their sequence of plays, do you think there would be no such way to evaluate a favored position in a card game? There definitely would be. That'd be based on card scene, cards left in deck, pitch stack, order cards, uh, and life total, and whatever you have in play and equipment and stuff. So tempo is just being in a winning position. Or trying to create a winning position in the longer run by giving up short-term value. It's like a gambit chess um, or a throw in and go so, so would you call that creating tempo and i guess let's use your go example when you throw in a piece and go and they capture it but in doing so it means that group of stones is going to die in the long term it depends and there is a term for tempo and go it's called sente and you always want to be playing in sente or your opponent owing you a move in a, in a particular situation it's a very real concept in the game yes it would absolutely be the case where if your opponent has to respond to your move in a given situation because your move is so threatening that allows you the next move after your opponent responds to your move to play wherever else you want on the board it's called maintaining sente don't try to knock me on my go knowledge michael i was a nine digit q for a while nine digits that's a lot of digits yeah uh, nine more digits and five more don levels and i would have been pro but you know it's like i think i was like the equivalent to like a 13 or 1400 in like chassis yellow or something like that at like my peak go but like i haven't played in five years but um i guess jumping back to flesh and blood we're not starting a go podcast unfortunately not <laughs> dang I think Go is a cool game. I appreciate having some variance in my games to make it a little bit less memorization-based than pattern recognition. But jumping back to Flesh and Blood, anytime you are in an advantageous position, you have tempo. A long-term advantageous position where you're... No. No. Okay. Anytime you have short-term advantage, you have tempo. So if I take five damage to play out my aura, then my opponent has tempo. Generally. Okay, let's let's jump back to Guardians. I like Guardians. So let's say let's say I'm playing against a Runeblade, as as we frequently do, and they attack me with some cards and I block with three cards and then I pitch an ice card to swing winner's whale. What what would determine who has tempo in that position where the Runeblade's attacking with their whole hand? And I am blocking with three cards and attacking with one card. Does that mean they have tempo? Is it just based on life totals? What what defines tempo in that kind of game? It would definitely depend on life totals. But life totals always have to be considered when evaluating pivoting and, and tempo and and initiative in the game. Uh, and any other synonyms you want to use for tempo. 
And it would depend also then on deck cards, number of cards in deck, where if they're on their last five cards in deck and you still have 20 cards in deck, then you still have all the tempo because you, you're creating here. Here's here's a 5D chess term for all of our listeners now. Negative tempo. You have negative tempo, Michael, because your defensive capabilities are so overwhelming that your opponent can't ever generate enough offensive tempo in order to overcome your negative tempo. So you can have tempo by threatening to fatigue someone. Right. That's negative tempo. And when you combine negative tempo and regular tempo, you get game state equilibrium. I feel like we've got a 30, 40 minutes of recording and I don't feel like this is any more any clearer than it was when we started. I think like I get I get the prism example where you are playing prism, you're taking this damage to develop your auras. I don't know where tempo comes into it, but that's definitely things you do with prism. <laughs> you're like, I'm taking my damage, playing my auras, classic prism. <laughs> it can't block anyway. Yeah, they don't block anyways. <laughs> the decision's made for me. I have to I hope tempo exists, otherwise prism doesn't exist. I guess I'm just confused on the base definition of tempo still. So let's let's take it back even to the the first. Could you understand like what initiative in the game? Like, do you think you could evaluate like who is winning? Who who has the current winning game state? The current winning game state. Yes. Do you think so? Like your old time, you have fifty cards in your deck, and you're against a briar who has two cards left in their deck. And I got like at least eight life points or something. Okay. And you got 20 health. Yeah, you got 20 life. Who's who's winning that game state? The old time. Why? It's because the briar can't kill him. And he's out of threats. Right. Or she's out of threats. Yeah, that's that's the most the surface level like evaluation you can do of like okay. who has the initiative, who's winning in a game state. So let's let's wind the clock back and let's say you're at that same 20 life total points, Briar's at 20 life total points. You have 20 cards in deck. Briar has 15 cards left in deck. You you will do what all good flesh and blood players say, and you'll say, can I see your graveyard? And you will look through their graveyard and try to remember the cards they pitched earlier in the game to remember what kind of threats they have left. And you'll say, hmm, well, I know that Briar pitched a Channel Mount Heroic with another Earth card earlier on in the game, and... They've already played two other Channel Mount Heroics, and those are the most threatening cards that I'm worried about in this matchup right now. So all I have to do is get through this one Channel Mount Heroic, and I will have created a winning game state. So you are in the lead in this game state, I would say, because the only card that matters in this very simplified example that we're saying at this moment is this Channel Mount Heroic that's threatening to overwhelm you with the point of damage, uh, overwhelm your hand's damage uh, mitigation and cause you to lose the game. And then, so from that standpoint, the Briar then has to be thinking, well, I know I'm trying to play to the Shannon Mount Heroic in order to mitigate, or in order to set up a winning game state. So both players are on the same, like knowing what's up, and they say, hey, can I look through your graveyard? And they say, wow, you've only played, all your sink belows are gone, and, but oh no, you've only attacked with one oak in old this game. And I know that you were coming up on second cycle where you did that perfect Michael Hamilton pitch stack <laughs> of the, the oak in olds. So this game plan of the Shannon Mount Heroic setup might not even be good enough if they get it, because they will have already lost enough initiative or cards in deck or life at that point where the game state is basically deterministic so it's up to them to 
create a pivot where they're trying to do something else in order to close out the game or win the game. And it's really hard for decks to do that sometimes. Um, And it's not easy. And we see that a lot in Flesh and Blood, especially if we're looking at Uprising, everybody's favorite limited format, where people just are like, oh, well, I lost the die roll. I can't win the five match. Because there's no way for you to generate tempo in order to steal the initiative back in the game, because there's no point at which you can threaten anything or present damage over the amount that Phi is going to have inherently in capable of his four to five card hands. Sorry, we, we jump we jump between uh analogies. Jumping back. Yeah, I, 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 that, that was my bad. If the old Heim is able to survive this chain of out heroic, he wins the game or survive at a reasonably healthy life total or whatever. So does old Heim have tempo in this example? Because yeah. if the computer runs the simulation that the, the old Heim is going to win the game most of the time. Right. So it's incumbent on the Briar in order to find a pivot where do something unexpected. Maybe the Briar starts blocking out with her hands in some unusual ways or tries to find in a different way to start chipping in damage or just starts us activating grasp of the arc knight every turn to start building up rune chance to start trying to get arcane damage Uh, there's just things you have to do in order to go around the positive tempo or around the negative tempo that your opponent's setting up in order to exact the winning game state that you want to create. And once, and sometimes that just happens because somebody blunders, you know? Sometimes somebody just says, oh, I don't need to attack that Genesis. They can make one spectral shield. What's the worst that can happen? And then the game just snowballs for there where, you know, Prism puts out two more auras in a turn and you're just like, oh, well, I just never had an opportunity to generate four or tempo again. And they're, there was just I just got outvalued from there. So maybe you are actually behind on tempo until your opponent blundered, and then you were way ahead. So there's just a lot of things that can factor into this at that point. If then. we jump again, I got another question. If we sit down and I'm, we see one person's playing old time, one person's playing prism. Does the prism player have the tempo because they're all, they're likely to win before anything starts? Yeah, because there's no, almost nothing that Oldheim can do to pivot to change the game state. Like there, there, there is nothing that he can do to steal back the tempo in the matchup. So tempo is literally just whoever's more likely to win or or favored to win from there. Right, but that can change through pivots. And so a pivot turn is taking the tempo from your opponent. And taking the tempo is when you go from a losing game state to a winning game state, either through a genius play or a mistake from your opponent. So a pivot turn is executing that mistake or genius play. Or a lucky draw or whatever it may be, I guess. Sure, yeah. Or, you know, drawing the perfect rainbow oak and old after. Yeah, yeah. In the finals of Indianapolis. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Heard it all before. (laughs) Are you a believer? Have Have I convinced you? So a pivot turn is just. Anytime the game state goes from losing to winning is a pivot turn. That, that's that's what you're trying to set up with a pivot okay. turn. Okay, so sometimes you're just playing the game and your opponent draws a dysfunctional hand of all blues or all reds or whatever it may be. And that's a negative pivot turn, so they can't do anything. They, they'd lose all the initiative. So And that's what you're hoping for. Like That's what you're hoping for against the room plays. You're just hoping, like, mm, draw the all non-attack yeah, action the, hand, please. Or classic. Player Sonata, the very good playable card that everybody loves and is definitely, everybody should keep playing for as long as it's it's legal. 
Rune Blades, please, please keep playing that card because you're always, you know, it's so, such good tempo when you get the two cards when you put resources into it. It's very good. It's a very good tempo initiative. And nobody has ever whiffed off of a Snada Arcanix and lost because of that ever in the history <laughs> so, of Flesh and Blood. Now that we've established what a pivot turn is and tempo is, tempo, tempo is, is tempo plural? What tempo is? Okay, we know what pivot turns are. We know what tempo is. How do you create a pivot turn then? It's just when you're like, so it happens when you draw really well, your opponent draws really poorly, or someone makes a mistake. Is that correct? Or your opponent is unable to deal with the game state that you've created as a result of your pivot turn. Like best example is I know we keep going back to it is Prism Auras because she's just the clearest example I could go to. There's probably other ways to do it. Um I know there are, in fact. Usually uh Icelander is another good example where she'll lose a bunch of initiative sometimes in order to set up Frost Hex or Kano playing these potions or something like that. Anytime that you're trying to set up and either lose even more initiative in the game in order to get such an overwhelming advantage later or do something that will overwhelm your opponent's resources so much that they will have fewer options left to them available for either the next couple of turns of turn cycles or hopefully the rest of the game ideally with if you're pivoting hard enough okay this that's why I, like command and conquer is like a mini pivot command and conquer is like a, a small teeny teeny small little pivot because you're just trying to say hey i'm i'm trying to take away a resource from you i'm going to take more damage up front and so i can try to strip you of a resource later and then i want the board initiative from there because i denied you a resource so my resources will be more impactful by the fact that you had less that's the smallest teeniest tiniest little pivot you can think of i guess a race phase also is similar where your cards are less impactful because you don't have a hero ability or talent or classes or anything like that next i guess your ability stick around but you don't have class ca- talent or class cards next turn so your strategy is going to flounder on top of this damage that i'm pushing and because you're floundering a little bit i'm going to be able to flourish huh huh <laughs> uh-huh so is this what everyone means when they use the terms tempo and pivot turns they're just talking about swinging the game from a losing game state i can't speak for everyone i'm not going to take full responsibility for every human being who uses these words on the planet but that's what i mean okay cool because <laughs> for all i know somebody's gonna walk up to me at a at a calling now and be like oh man i had tempo because i shuffled my deck wrong and it's like what hmm? i feel like tempo and pivot turns have always been like buzzwords and i've never really had a strong grasp on what is generally meant when people say these words like so here's another way to think about tempo. So I guess if we think about it from its original sense with music, which is like the pace of which the game is played. And if we relate it to card games, then a better way to think about it then would be to say the pace at which threats are deployed. If you are deploying more threats than your opponent, you're going to have tempo. And so that's why we say decks like Runeblade play the game a little bit faster than decks that are slower, like Guardian. And then we have to get into the sense of what even is a threat, right? But does so far are you with me on the first concept there? So, so tempo is not who is just, it's not just who is winning. It is who is playing more threats well if you're winning your cards are more threatening right so this example we've been talking about this whole time if you're at three life and your opponent attacks you with a three powered attack that's very very threatening because you'll literally lose the game if you don't block (laughs) sure okay i guess we can go into what a threat is then 
So, um, yeah, and that's why a card like CNC is threatening to steal back tempo, where because otherwise, if you're ahead on life, your opponent could just soak up all the damage because nothing you're doing to them is actually threatening them. If your opponent's at 40 life and you attack them for 30, you're not threatening them at all, technically, because nothing you're doing is mattering if you're going to lose the next turn cycle, or they know they have a stronger turn cycle that you're not going to be able to defend out and lose the game. So that's why also, once again, I've been saying, you know, there's a difference between that range of life you get to between 1 and 10, 1 to 20, those life total ranges matter a lot for tempo because at certain life total ranges, certain cards and effects become more threatening than others than they would be at other points in the game. Okay, so I guess let's jump into an example. So thinking back to, like, let's say a fight deck where you're attacking, but basically you don't have any on hits. You're just attacking for damage and your damage becomes really threatening when they're at a low life total and the damage is threatening lethal because you die if you don't block. But before that, if your cards are more efficient on offense, you don't have any real motivation to block if you're not being threatened with lethal. Well, it depends at that point too, because it once again factors into, well, you're a guardian and you're saying, well, if I don't block, then I get to... My, I have four cards in my hand. They all block three. So I have 12 total block value. But if I attack and I can use all my cards, I can swing back for 15. So therefore, it is higher value on just the raw numbers for me to attack with this hand, right? But then if you – so you take the 30 damage to attack back for 15. But then if five swings back 30 damage again, you no longer have the option to attack for the rest of the game more than likely because you're just hard committed to blocking and won't be able to use your cards effectively for the rest of the game. So that's why it's matchup dependent, it's situation dependent, and I I can kind of see why you would struggle with this concept a little bit because overall, yes, winning turn cycles does factor in a lot to tempo, but you also have to consider what the overall game plans for both decks are and what the velocity of threats that each deck is presenting each on each turn cycle. And that's also what allows auras to be so impactful in a game because while the turn cycle you set up the aura maybe you'll take more damage hopefully you usually don't want to be taking extra on hits letting your opponent draw cards because it's harder to recoup that value than just taking the damage but every time your opponent swings anything into a spectra aura they are losing value they are not getting go again they're not getting any on hits and they're not getting any damage through they're just spending either a whole action, sometimes even a whole card, attacking the aura, which is a complete loss of tempo for them at that point. They are taking a whole card that is normally can be or would be very threatening, sometimes even a lethal attack, that, or they could threaten a lethal attack, and it's still right to swing into an aura just because the amount of threat or uh, tempo that the aura will gain back in the long run will completely offset that attack. Because, wait, sorry. So it's correct to attack the aura sometimes, even when the attack is lethal. Why is that minus tempo when the aura... Because you're not threatening. If if we're saying tempo now is the rate of threat deployment, then you're not deploying... Then you're you're deploying an answer, not a threat. Sure. So you're... Instead of... Instead of building your own tempo, you're taking away your opponent's tempo because that aura represents tempo in play. Yeah, negative tempo. It is a threat. (laughs) And that's why guardians (laughs) generate negative tempo because they're not usually threatening very much. Most of the time, a guardian at its core is threatening one attack with one on hit effect so if the opponent can mitigate that one attack or that one on hit effect that isn't just not a lot of tempo gain so therefore that's why guardians have to generate the negative tempo and spending more cards and resources in order to 
block and play more defensive games because the rate at which they can deploy threats is so much lower than every other class in the game, aside from Azalea, which has zero tempo and zero answers. So, okay. So <laughs> then if I'm playing, let's say I'm playing Bravo. Yeah. I got two card or two blues, Crippling Crush, and a Seismic Surge token. And I, instead of blocking with those, I play this Crippling Crush. This is not generating tempo. This is removing my opponent's tempo because it's either they're going to have to block and lose threats or they're going to discard two threats. That, that That is generating tempo. What are you talking about? Because you are presenting a threat while simultaneously removing your opponent's threats. So I guess if we think of like tempo, because because you're winning that exchange for tempo because your one threat is going to be taking away your opponent's three threats here, potentially. The card they're blocking with, and if they can't block with anything else and they have to discard two cards, you're using a, a very threatening card to make it so your opponent can't threaten you back their next turn cycle in a meaningful way and then you get to present the next hopefully meaningful threat and that's why like what is a threat is overall fluid and dynamic in game states and why sometimes you'll say like hmm i think playing this channel like frigid is generating a lot of tempo for me because my opponents won't be able to threaten me in a meaningful way in their next turn and then your opponent just has two extra like an extra blue in their hand and still is able to present three or four sometimes threats back to you and you say hmm well i spent a whole card in order to try to generate tempo in hopes that my opponent wouldn't be threatening me back in a meaningful way in their next turn cycle and here they are threatening me back in a meaningful way in their next turn cycle so i have both i've double lost tempo i spent i did not deploy a threat and i did not stop my opponent from threatening me so Gaining tempo and taking away your opponent's tempo, they're the same thing. Is that right? Because you said you're trying to play this channel like Frigid to, to gain tempo, but it's not It's not presenting any threats. It's not doing anything threatening. It just stops your opponent from threatening you or weakens your opponent's ability to threaten you. So this it should be taking away their tempo, right? Yeah, So because you can't maintain equal tempo for the whole game state because somebody will <laughs> just run out of life points. If we're, all we're doing is just attacking each other and presenting the most threats we can every turn, that's just not a very interesting game. Do you think you get it now? Has as my do we finally crystallize and distill the meaning of tempo? <laughs> this this does feel kind of different from what you were saying earlier. I'm not sure if it's just like another angle or it's completely contradictory. Yeah, I had to recontextualize it, uh, and I might be a contradictory, but that's because I had to explore and help, and even just talking through it with you helped me better understand it myself. So thank you, Michael. That's why there's no such thing as a stupid question, like, what is tempo? Okay, so to wrap it all up, to sum everything up, what is tempo? The rate at which each opponent is presenting threats or answers. So if one player is presenting many threats and another player is not presenting very many threats, they're just blocking out or not doing very much, then the person that is presenting all these threats has the tempo or has a tempo advantage. And then a pivot turn is when someone kind of ignores or mitigates these threats a way that they can then present their own threats back at the original player that quote had the tempo so a pivot turn would be this the crippling crush example where you are presenting a large threat and your opponent now is not going to be able to keep presenting threats the way they were and that is a pivot turn that's taking the tempo cool i think that sums it up pretty nicely very cool any other any other questions that you have about pivoting or tempo or initiative in games now. Hopefully you can use these tips, Michael, and your next game of Flesh and Blood to help you win a little bit more. Hopefully. Though they were concepts that... <laughs> I feel like this is more like a definition talk rather than 
helpful strategy advice. That's not true. I think the fact that you, you, a very high level former number one constructive player in the world, was unsure of what these buzzwords were and what their ethereal nature was, I think outlining them, having a good debate on them and establishing them, it will be very helpful for a lot of people, hopefully. Otherwise, um, we just made a bad podcast. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> So are you a believer? Do you believe I, now? I don't know what there is to believe in. I feel like I've just been like, yeah, sometimes you're losing and then you're winning. That's, that's that's what I was saying from the beginning. That's why I was like, you can't not believe in this because they're just established and errant things about the game. But you're like, I don't believe in it. So I, I would tell you what two plus two equals and show you how to get to four. I guess I am a believer that sometimes you're losing and then you're winning after your turn. And that is a pivot turn. Or sometimes you're losing and then your opponent has a really bad turn and it's a negative pivot turn. Yeah. Hell yeah, Michael. You did it. I'm proud of you. I love you. Just watching, Just like watching my own other son learn how to talk and walk right now. You're, you're doing it too. <laughs> Thanks. Uh-huh. But more importantly, to the listener out there, let us know what you think of our definitions of pivot or tempo or initiative are in flesh and blood. Do you have any good examples that we might have overlooked or really think that we're getting something wrong with our definition? Uh, obviously, if Michael Hamilton, the, the great Michael Hamilton wasn't clear on this definition, the teeny tiny peon Roger Bodie could be very wrong here. So I'm definitely open to being educated more properly by somebody out there who can show me that two plus two equals five somehow. So anything you want to say before we sign off then, Michael? Thanks everybody for listening and being patient while I learned all about pivot turns. Yeah. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. And the next time you're creating your own pivot turn, always remember, mind your manners. We'll see you next time. 